Hey there, friends. How's it going? My name is Kyle Devlin, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the Having a Blast podcast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. If you happen to like what you hear, if you could do me a huge favor, perhaps give us a five-star review. That just really helps get the algorithms working in our favor, and then more people can hear the podcast. Or Another thing that really helps us out is if you share it with a friend. If you've got a friend that enjoys this type of music, pop punk and indie, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. friends. I hope you all are doing well out there beyond podcast land. I've been well. My household just got a new puppy, so it's been a little chaotic today. I usually work from home on Wednesdays, but today was a little bit out of the norm as we're trying to cultivate some new routines of sorts. Today, I am extremely excited to share my chat with you all. I recently spoke with Zach Gehring of the band May. Zach is the guitarist and co-songwriter for the band May, and he's been in the band since 2004, right after Destination Beautiful came out in 2003. I've been a massive fan of May since around the 2003-2004 mark. Honestly, they're one of my favorite bands. Zach and I go into a lot of topics in this episode. I want to thank Zach for being so transparent honest, and even vulnerable in parts of our conversation. He gave a lot of extremely thoughtful and high-level answers to a lot of different questions that I had. We talk about the history of the band, becoming a massively successful independent band, putting out a major label release, and then ultimately finding ways to put out music on their own terms. I felt compelled to support May in any way that I could after speaking with Zach. He's just a class act. Yeah, it was really great to talk to him. We also talk a little bit about trying to learn and having the open and willingness to learn even when it's uncomfortable. We also talk a little bit about Zach's love of punk rock and how that influences his personality. Honestly, I think I could talk to Zach all day. It was so much fun. So without any further delay, please enjoy this multifaceted conversation with Mr. Zach Gehring of the band May. Hi. Hey, Zach, how are you? Do you hear me? Yeah, yeah, you sound great, man. That was fast. Good, good, good. Yeah, well, you know, I'm so happy you missed me, and I I worked until two today, and like this thing totally slipped my mind, despite me asking about it a couple of days ago, and so I'm so glad I looked at my Instagram when I did, when I went home, so I remember, yes, this is why I, this is what we're scheduling, so anyway. Yeah, yeah. dude. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. <laughs> of and course. I appreciate you confirming with me the other day. You're actually the oh, first no, person yeah. to do that. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted, sometimes things change and uh, so, you know, things come up and such, I want to be sure it's still on and nothing to change sure. about it. Yeah. That's very responsible of you. It's usually incumbent upon me to follow up <laughs> with the potential guests, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I teach at universities around here. So I'm always, I've gotten to the habit of continuing to keep up with students just because they won't. And then they'll, they'll email me day of and say, I forgot or something like that. I'm just like, well. So yeah, I may yeah. kind of cut off that option at the knees by just, you know, checking in earlier. So for sure. Yeah. I'm sure you're used to it. Although that's what you're supposed to learn in college, right? 
<laughs> yeah, you'd think so. Yeah, you would think for sure. Are you teaching right now? I'm going to teach you one class right now. It actually ends this week. And then I start like full-time again in fall. So Okay, cool. Yeah. And what university? I teach at Old Dominion University in Norfolk. And I also teach at Christopher Newport University. And that's Newport News, about 20, 30 minutes north from here. Okay. And so, I believe I was literally just reading Wikipedia for May. Is that where mm-hmm. Jacob went? Old Dominion? Jacob went to Old Dominion. I also got my undergrad and uh, MA at Old Dominion. Dave was okay. there for a bit, but he stopped going after a relatively short time. So, Okay, cool. Awesome. It's funny how as we get older, certain things, they come full circle, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. That's got to be a trip. So now I'm just like, yeah. I mean, you know, Jacob definitely worked with some of the people at the university still that are still there. So and that I know now. So. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Did you have to do a lot of online classes or? No, I actually stopped going to school. And when the band started going up more full time, or at least our ambitions changed a little bit. In the case of Unsung Zeros, I quit UC. I was going to UCF in Orlando out of high school. And that was probably until about 2000. I don't know, one, I might have stopped. And then I started playing and we went on tours and whatnot. By the time I joined May, I was already out of school. And so I was able to commit full time. And then once May slowed down is when I went back. But I started going just full time on campus. And I I took some online courses, but not out of necessity, just out of... I teach online courses when that helps. But yeah, I didn't really have to do the online thing too much, thankfully. I, I, I don't know. I say thankfully. I don't think I'd like to, but you know. Yeah. During COVID, you didn't have to do a lot of Zoom sessions or anything. I, I did... Uh, asynchronous courses and one synchronous course during COVID. ODU, Old Dominion, went online more quickly and more widely than CNU to Christopher Newport did. So Christopher Newport actually taught all through the pandemic, which was surprising, but, and I did get COVID, but not from class. I got it from a friend of mine, but oh, wow. um, yeah. And so I was surprised I didn't have to stop going and teaching online or I was teaching in class. I didn't have to. And I was lucky, you know, I was afraid that the, the class would be taken away because just of everything going on. But luckily that did not happen. And that's why I was so eager just like, I'll do whatever it takes to keep the course. And that meant at least, you know, I, I figured it'd be better if I just said, okay, I'll teach on campus. I'm not, you know, I didn't worry about it, but. Okay, you know. cool. Yeah. Just to continue making it happen. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A bit of a scary time for some people just kind of not knowing, you know, oh, yeah. like, probably wondering if I'm going to be out for a semester or something, what does that mean exactly from a financial standpoint? Yeah, for sure. And I didn't know with adjuncting, you know, you don't know from semester to semester regardless, even yeah. in, when things are full full scale. So I was definitely a little worried and concerned about maintaining at least a few classes through it all. And I was able to do so, thankfully. But yeah, a lot of my friends, especially in the production world, you know, music, I mean, a good buddy of mine is doing backline. That was, he was basically running a backline company, you know, the work just quickly dried up. And so a lot of my friends were in a tougher spot than I was for sure. Yeah. And now it's all systems go in the opposite direction. All systems go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now he's like back working, you know, I'm seeing photos on his, on his Instagram of him like working gigs again. So like, yeah, yeah. now everything's like it, like it was. Not That's really great. Yeah. yeah. I saw that meme. I don't know if you saw it the other day where it, I'll never financially recover from 2021 <laughs> after all the tour announcements. Yeah. I just saw a buddy of mine. It was, it was the, what was the dude, the that Netflix documentary that came out that everyone was obsessed with. The beginning oh, Tiger of the pandemic. King. It was a photo of that dude saying, I'll never financially recover from this. And it's like, after all, favorite bands announce their tours coming up that's amazing yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, somebody showed me that the other day and i was like yeah that's pretty (laughs) 
accurate. You know, <laughs> I train a couple of musicians. I'm a personal trainer. And I train a couple of musicians oh. and they took the time off as an opportunity to focus on their health or just focus on other things. And now they're mm-hmm. all gearing up to go back out again. So, well, yeah. you know, if they work with you, then they're in good health. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> At least they're hopefully physically I, fit and ready to do it. Yeah, hopefully I taught them something. Um, <laughs> you mentioned Unsung Zeros. This is an easy mm-hmm. segue. Oh, cool. Wanted, yeah. There's a loose connection. My first band was around that time, the 2000 to 2004 mark. Mm-hmm. I want to say we played a show with Unsung Zeros at one point. I think we were just touring a lot. And I remember seeing that name on flyers everywhere we would go. Mm-hmm. It's possible we played together it's all kind of fuzzy because there was just so many shows back then. And we were going up and down the coast on each side and lots of house shows and things. But I looked up unsung zeros and said they're based out of Orlando, Florida, or Mm -hmm. were based out of Orlando, Florida. So you're in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Did you live in Florida? Is that how? Yeah. I'm, I'm originally from central Florida, a town called Mount Dora. So, um, and my family is still there in the same house and my brother's in St. Pete. So all of my family is mostly in Florida. And that's why the band, the band that is from there, we started in my high school. And that's why that says that. And I moved to Virginia in 2006 officially. I had already been staying there for the most part between tours. I finally bought a house in 2006 in Virginia. So yeah, that's why Unsung Zero is, is based in Orlando and I'm based in Virginia. So Oh, okay, cool. Excellent. Yeah. So what was that transition like? Because I know Unsung Zeros broke up in 2004, I believe. Yeah, I left, so I started the band in like, I guess I was probably a sophomore in high school and lasted, we, we ended up like going pretty, trying to go full time. I think I quit school, like I said, in 2000, maybe one or two, 2000, I'm not entirely sure, probably 2001. And we had just tried, you know, like you said, we we're just touring a whole lot as much as we could, you know, we didn't really have a booking agent. So we were doing most of the booking ourselves. Sure. And we would just tour as much as we could before I quit, we'd tour in wintertime, like after semester, during summertime between semesters. And eventually I stopped going to school and we did full-time and then we continued to try to tour. And I don't know, the band just wasn't, the tours weren't getting better. We didn't, we were not, it's not like we were getting bigger shows consistently or not like we were getting more representation. We didn't have a booking agent still. And I decided to go back to school at the end of this tour that we were on. And so that was probably 2002, spring of 2002. And that was the tour that on some zeros did with May. So I'd already known the band just from touring with them a little bit. And we got along really well, come from similar backgrounds for the most part. And so it was a lot of fun. And then their guitarist left midway through the tour and they had more touring to do. I had already decided that the tour for Unsung Zeros with May ended in summertime. And so I was already set to go back to school in the fall. And I just said, hey, if you need a guitar player through the next month or so before, you know, I can do it. And I don't know why I said that. I had no experience playing those songs at all. I liked the band a whole lot. And I guess it was just kind of like this Hail Mary. I don't remember my thought process at the time, but I just asked Dave, I have a memory of us at the social in Orlando after the show. And I just mentioned to him, hey, if you need someone to fill in, I can do it. And I think it was for them, it was like a non-committal thing as well, just because they knew I was going to school. So they wouldn't lock themselves into a weird situation and it didn't work out. Oh, no. sure. And um, 
that's when, you know, so over the next week or so, I'd be on the phone with Dave a whole lot, just learning guitar parts. And I'd never played with them ever, never rehearsal before our first show in West Virginia. And that was in the summer of 2002. And then that's when that started. So once I joined May, we just toured and May already had representation, booking a booking agent and a label and a manager, right? So we were just on the road nonstop from then on. And so I just saw a flyer the other day. You might've seen it on, on my Instagram. It was a flyer. It said May and I'm saying zero. There's a show that we played together. And it was on that tour that eventually at the end of the tour, I said I'd join in that. So I made the decision to leave on Sing Zero just because I wasn't, I just kind of was leaning just to go back to school. And uh, I didn't love, I was getting out of the things musically. And that's why May was so appealing and more of an indie band. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of tired of playing the, you know, pop punkish type stuff. And I think that was the other guys in Sing Zero too, because they, they released an EP after I left. It's, they're the best thing on some years that's ever released in my opinion but yeah so they're all they're all still in orlando uh, or florida i should say and i'm still you know we're still friends we played a couple of reading shows over the past couple of years in orlando been really fun so cool. i don't know if i how far i went into your question that's a lot of information i just gave you no that was great i was curious how you transitioned into may so you just answered that question that's great yeah i just it was weird that the show we played i can't imagine how nervous they were they were probably more nervous than i was but it was like a, it was a basement show at a church in west virginia so the stakes weren't high it wasn't like, you know, I mean, that's not to, you know, the show was great, but, you know, I had like my Marshall 412, like Jason 100, like it was not the best fit, but, you know, it worked and it worked for the band enough so that Matt, the guitar player, came back for a bit after I joined. And then I went back to Florida and I was literally, I decided, okay, I'm going to register for classes again at UCF. And I was about to en- press enter on the computer. I was in the library, the UCF library at the time. And Mark of all people. And I say Mark of all people because I didn't think, you know, Mark would have called me. I thought it would have been Dave or Jacob. Mm-hmm. Mark called me and he said, Hey, do you want to come back? Because Matt left again. And so I flew to Rochester like two days or the next day and joined up. And the first show I played with May after that, like the, after I joined again, right, was with Hunsung Zeros in Rochester. And so that was kind of fun. Uh, interesting. And I, I guess the band was okay. Like, you know, I left the band and then I joined May and maybe there was some resentment on, on part of the Unsung Zeros guys. But if there was, I don't remember that being expressed or evident. And so it was kind of good to see them because it was really weird playing another band again. So sure. yeah. And that was like, and after that, I feel like May joined up with Elliot. Then we just started touring nonstop. Cool. Excellent. Yeah. And by that point, did they already have a deal with Tooth and Nail or? Yeah, they had already released Destination, Destination Beautiful. Beautiful. So we were touring on that record and it wasn't a record deal. Or, I mean, they we had licensed, the, the band had licensed the record to Tooth and Nail. So it was only a one record thing. And so we didn't have any contractual obligations to Tooth and Nail leading into the Everglow. But we stayed with Tooth and Nail. Thankfully, I, I think we left Tooth and Nail too early when we signed a capital, but I say that in retrospect. So yeah, and that, and then we started writing this stuff for the Everglow and a lot of the stuff I'd already been, anyway, that's another story altogether, which we'll get into maybe or maybe not, but yeah, so that's how that happened. It's pretty smooth transition. I was able to go home, all that stuff. You know, I, I, that was like one of the best times of my life. I remember just being super excited and I love May and I loved Elliot and I was on the road with them and May's agent, Eva, and still is Eva, my fate of booking. Yeah. And she's like been the one person on our team that has been consistent from day one, from before I was in the band up until this day she's been working with us alongside us and for us and we've gained a lot from her expertise her abilities and her wisdom so yeah it's one of those things where i was like super stoked and excited and young of probably like 22 
two or something like that. I don't know. It's wild. Sure. Yeah. I bet it was a trip. I bet it was a blast. Definitely. She has been doing it forever. I remember seeing her name and just going to that website when we were in the band then. And there was a period of time where I think our main goal as a band was to get a booking agent. It wasn't even necessarily to get a label. Yeah. I think that's the way it should still be. I think agents are more difficult to get than labels. And even if you have a label, doesn't mean you're going to get an agent. And I think I would argue, I won't claim, I would argue that a booking agent is the most important thing young bands need just because you need to play shows in front of people. But yeah, same. I mean, I remember talking with, I want to say it was Eva. It might have been Yvonne. At the time, it was Yvonne and Eva. And Midtown was going through Florida and they had a day off on the way up to Jacksonville or something or Gainesville. And so somehow, I I think I emailed Eva maybe, emailed Feta and I said, hey, you know, we can get the show for him. And so I remember that's the first time I talked to Feta. You know, she's like talking about contracts and, and money and stuff. And I was like, that was about my pay grade at the time because we didn't <laughs> it all. So I was like, eh, you know, contractual stuff. And so, I, you know, it was a fun show. And yeah, she she's worked with like all my favorite bands growing up. And so for me, it was, really, you know, like that was enough. Even that one dimension of the May experience for me was super rad because I was already looking up to Eva and she was super sweet. Her and Yvonne both like were there so nice. I remember going into their basement office in Philadelphia when I first, you know, when we stopped through and like all these like CDs stuff. It was just like, you know, Cloud Nine stuff for me. It was was amazing. Were they sisters? No, they were just friends. And I don't know the story of the meeting, but it's funny because their names are so similar. And, you know, but uh, yeah, even Yvonne, I think Yvonne is working out in LA somewhere now. I haven't, I'm not sure. So I don't want to speak out of turn, but still I'm in touch with Eva to this day. We all have kids now. And, you know, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, that's great. We were good friends with the band Yellow Card early yeah. on in their career. I think they were the ones that instilled that in us. Get a booking agent. Our mm-hmm. booking agent's the reason we're where we are. They were working with Corey Christopher. Okay, yeah, yeah. And she's still doing it, apparently. She's mm-hmm. still a booking agent. But I remember we paid to go to this panel to get in front of her. And she said, you guys don't have a label. There's no reason for me to work with you if you don't have a label. Wow. There's nobody. Yeah, and we were heartbroken. But at the same time, we kind of understood based on how... She was very... Lovely. She was very sweet. Yeah, she was uh-huh. nice and encouraging. And she came to some of our shows out in LA or actually it wasn't LA. It was chain reaction in Anaheim, but that was our main goal for a while was to try to get somebody to just keep us on the road. Cause at that point we were just using book your own fucking life. Yeah. That, no, I mean, our guitar player, uh, Jerry, unsung's guitar player, he would book those tours and to his credit, I mean, it is difficult to book tours. And I don't know how, in what ways the landscape has shifted between booking shows now and booking shows then, because I'm not in a young band. I don't know what it's like to try to book tours at all. But I mean, back then, obviously the internet wasn't the tool it is now. And there's a lot of phone calls and a lot of, you know, you know how it is, you're doing it. And so, yeah. And he would book these shows and, you know, I couldn't, looking back, I can't imagine, I can't believe I was able to kind of string shows together in the way that he did. So yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. You know, Eva was already on the team before I joined May, and I don't know what came first, if it was Tooth and Nail or Eva. I want to say it's Eva, but I'm not sure. I can't. That's That was before I was around uh, sure. the band. But yeah, what band were you in? I was in a band called Game Time. Okay, okay. And we kind of sounded similar to Unsung. We were kind of a pop punk band. Mm-hmm. We all grew up listening to skate punk. So it was mm-hmm. sort of the next iteration of that. We yeah. were fans of Fat Rack and Epitaph mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Anyway, I was like, you keep yeah. mentioning your band. It's like, well, I'm sure we crossed paths because we were touring a whole lot. And but did we play with the yellow card? I feel like we played with the yellow card in St. Pete at one point back then. I'm I'm sure you did. Too. Yeah. 
Yeah, they were another Florida band, so that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a venue in Atlanta, and I want to say that may have been where we played with you guys. Is it um, Club 513? I'm trying to think of the shows we played in Atlanta. I remember the crazy band that played there all the time. They were called Tree Fort. Tree Fort. Yes, 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 yes. You yes, remember yes, them? Yes. <laughs> was it was it the venue that they ran that in, yes. in the suburbs? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I remember that place. Dang, what was it called? Something. I'm blanking. Yeah. I, we but played I totally there. remember yeah, I we played there a bunch and they ran it. And I remember we were on a very small side stage at Warp Tour, and I remember okay. seeing those guys near us, like on another small <laughs> stage. <laughs> I was like, that's a crazy band from Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember that venue. Yeah, that was a long time ago. So I'm sure you had heard Destination Beautiful before you joined the band. Mm-hmm. Was it interesting coming into the band that already had a record that was doing really well? And was it difficult finding your place in that? It was surprisingly not difficult to find my place, at least in terms of what was necessary or needed for the way I came into the band. That is to say, look, we just started on the road. And so there's a dynamic you need on the road. And playing, I mean, I could play, playing was fine. I mean, I'm sure like I became better as I went along. I'm not saying I was fine from the start, but in terms of the dynamic, the social dynamic in the band, you know, it was really, it was surprisingly easy. I, I got along with the guys really, really well. And this is me telling the story. Maybe they would say something different, but I, you know, they kept me around and they didn't have to do that, especially, you know, when after the tour stopped. Right. So I don't know, maybe I benefited from the fact that they were on the road so, so much that they didn't really have the time. And I, maybe they thought as long as we have someone that can do it, then we'll just, you know, I don't know. But I just remember it being really easy because I was already familiar with the world somewhat that meaning I've been touring already. You know, so I'd run into friends we have already. Like, it wasn't like I was an entirely foreign world to me. Sure. And I remember one time on Warp Tour, like 2004 is the first Warp Tour we did. You know, I'd come up in the punk rock and hardcore scene. And that the guys in the band, I mean, Dave was in like emo and, you know, Mark was in the kind of like the, you know, a little bit of, but, you know, Jacob and Rob were not so much kind of in the scene. They, 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 they eventually were, of course. But I remember walking across the parking lot in the morning before Warp Tour started. And Jacob was just like, he's always been super genial and super nice. And he go and I see Jeff Rickley from Thursday. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm like, holy crap, it's Jeff Rickley. I'm getting like, you know, and Jacob just starts talking to him because Jacob doesn't know who he is. And so it's just like super, <laughs> super nice. I'm just like, holy crap, we're talking to Jeff Rickley. And, you know, they, they became friends on the tour. And, you know, just stuff like that. I'm just like, it was just a wild time. And I think you know, the guys were just having a good time. They, they never expected to be able to do what they were doing at the time. So I remember just being really easy and a lot of fun. And, you know, we didn't stop. We never stopped touring or, you know, not things didn't begin to like slow down to get more difficult until the singularity years, maybe a little prior, a little bit, a little bit before. Yeah. That was probably a thrilling time too. Just going from unsung to playing the warp tour with this band that's very up and coming. I mean, 2004, I think I told you via social media, the first time I heard May was actually from Scott Sellers. We were good friends with those guys. And he told me, you got to check out this band, May. They're great. They're on tooth and nail. This is around, I think, the tail end of 2003. So maybe right when you joined. Okay, yeah. And speaking of the band that you shared the bus with on Warped, I actually just talked to Rob a couple months ago. Oh, cool. Yeah. Hidden in plain view. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
another great band. Totally. So 2004, you guys toured a lot. You were still touring Destination Beautiful. Mm-hmm. I've heard you state that a lot of songs from the Everglow were already written, or perhaps there were skeletons of some of the songs already written. Was that before you joined the band? Yeah. So Song Like the Ocean had been something they'd been working on beforehand. I remember that in particular. And maybe I can't recall other songs. I remember that in particular being one that they would work on. And they told me it was the song that, you know, they would just jam on in the practice space or whatever. But then I remember writing songs like Sunless's Arms. You know, I remember Mark writing the riff or showing us the riff for Painless because he's the one that wrote that guitar intro. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. That was yeah. weird, you know, really cool sounding delay lead. And yeah, now we were able to kind of, because the first record was, it was weird because people, just the other day, someone had mentioned like how bands have this kind of software, sophomore slump situation where they have their first record really good because they've been writing it for a long time. And a lot mm-hmm. of the second one's difficult because they have to write it on the road. And that wasn't the case for me. And I think a lot of it's because we ended up moving to a bus pretty quickly out of necessity. We toured with Simple Plan and Plain White Tees. And that routing was so wild that we just needed our managers like you got you we should get a bus could we afford it i'm sure we couldn't afford it <laughs> um but uh, at the time we had the team in place to just kind of either sell out to us as something that could just be managed or you know who knows but we had this bus and so we were able to write and mark brought a studio on the bus like a little mobile thing and so we were able to kind of continually focus on the Everglow and those songs, even on the, even when we were on the road, especially, you know, Dave was able to kind of think more and it just was easier to write on the road with that, those kind of advantages. And by the time we had pulled into the studio, which I think after that simple plan tour, that's the tour that brought us out to the studio to record the Everglow in, in Los Angeles. By that time, we were tracking shakers and like, you know, percussive stuff, which is usually pretty ornamental that happens in the studio, you know, just kind of like fill out and, and, and make things better. But we were, we were already on that. And so we were super prepared for that record. And I think also because the songs have been around for a while that it wasn't, I don't know, they, they had a network, a strong kind of small creative network going on in that band already when I joined. And so my, my thing for me is like, I remember trying to like, you know, not step on toes or disrupt the process, but also wanted to justify my place in the band. Yeah. Um, and so I remember writing, this is the countdown was a riff that I'd started and I remember playing it at, let's say, I always forget it was Idaho or Iowa, but yeah. So, you know, it was one of those things where everything was clicking really well. And I mean, there was a focus there that led us into the studio with confidence. Things, you know, the shows were great. Everything was going, you know, everything was green lights for us at that point. The shows were getting better and better, kept getting better offers for tours. We had toured with something corporate. So, and just bigger tours that really kind of solidified our confidence and and, and moving forward. Absolutely. Now that I think about it, it's all kind of coming back to me because I've been to so many shows over the years. I actually saw May open for a yellow card in 2004 Mm -hmm. and it was a college show. I think it might've been. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Virgin mega, mega college tour or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm sure you guys were experiencing big crowds and just getting confident playing in front of big crowds. I was kind of curious your transition into May, if there was any trepidation to contribute. Because you know, when you join a new band that's already solidified, you can imagine it's difficult to kind of say, hey, I've got an idea. Oh yeah, it was. And I don't, you know, probably, you know, This Is The Countdown was a song. I mean, I pretty much had that intro riff and the the chords for the chorus or something like that. And then the band filled everything else out. That's pretty, that's my, that was the one kind of substantial contribution creatively that I had, I want to say. 
other things were just like small little guitar parts that I was just trying to, you know, Dave was already, you know, and he still is a better guitar player than, than I am, especially when it comes to writing, you know, he knew what he was doing. He's always had a very holistic vision of what he wanted. And so a lot of the process for me was kind of us getting to that space and that spot in a way that kind of allows all of us to contribute. Right. And those dynamics kind of fluctuated over the years. But during that time, you know, we all had a lot of ideas, but the direction of those ideas were still kind of, you know, parametered in a certain way, if that makes any sense. And sure. so for me, I was just trying, to, I was mostly silent. I think I was just trying to play the role that they needed me to play. And mm-hmm. when it came to doing things with guitars or something like that, if, you know, luckily we did the record with Ken Andrews and he's, obviously, you know, knows guitars. And so it wasn't, it was a, it was an enriching environment to be in. And I wish I could really kind of go back and and look at my psyche at the time. It's hard to remember what I was thinking or where my nerves were, but yeah, I don't remember any kind of, I just remember a lot of excitement. You know, at the time the band was still young enough to just kind of, everyone was just reveling in what was going on. And so the fact that I maybe didn't write a guitar part on a particular song didn't bum me out or didn't worry me um, or didn't frustrate me. You know, just like, okay, well, I'm here and this is rad. So, you know, and I, you know, I'm speaking for myself. I can't speak for the other guys, obviously, but uh, yeah. Yeah. You were along for the ride. I think that's... Uh, Yeah. 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 You know, and I wanted uh, to make things easier for the band. I wanted to make them feel fine and confident and just like someone that, that fit the mold so that nothing was disrupted, uh, you know, on the way to wherever we were going. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, in hindsight, maybe that was an intelligent decision for that time period of the band, because I know for me, in my egocentric ways back then, if I had joined a new band, I might've been more inclined to be in the vein of, I want my mm-hmm. stamp on this, you know, I really want my <laughs> ideas included. Yeah. But um, I mean, the fact yeah. that you you were in that position where you allowed Dave to kind of be the driver because like you said, he had a bit of a a holistic view, a 10,000 foot view of what he wanted Mm -hmm. to create. I've even heard Ken Andrews state that the Everglow, it was a process in which the band really had an idea of what they were going for. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to believe that Dave kind of had a plan for the layout of it, but maybe not each individual specific piece. Yeah. I mean, conceptually, it was a record that Jacob had a lot to do with and creatively, you know, those, it was raw. So it's not to, it's not to say that, you know, Dave was, it's not to take away from what Dave did or take away from what the band did. Right. Cause we have a song like um, We're So Far Away, which, you know, is just a beautiful piece between Rob and Dave and Rob Fiena line, for example, on Painless and the verse of Painless. So there were like meaningful contributions that create identifying points of the record from all from all the guys, you know. Absolutely. But yeah, you know, when someone is writing songs and someone had like they're singing the parts. I mean, I remember so many times, you know, I'd have a guitar part, uh, but it just wouldn't you know, mesh with the vocal melody that Dave already knew he was going to sing. And so, I mean, that was more of a frustrating thing only because, you know, in that sense, yes, I, I can come with a guitar part, but now that dimension to me was something new that I haven't thought of before. Because then some zeros, we just write our guitar parts and we wouldn't really kind of think about how it's going to clash or enrich the melody, the, the vocal melody. Sure. Um, but that was something I was learning in the band, aside from Rob and Dave's grasp on theory and being able to talk about music in a new way that I was not familiar with i had mm-hmm. some inkling of understanding from the unsung guys but not to the degree that you know dave and rob could talk and kind of communicate in a certain way so yeah there's so many different things that was going on and to say that the everglow i mean the everglow was this kind of it was a collaborative piece in which you know and i'm not including myself in that 
I'm saying that like Mark, Rob, Dave, and Jacob were all kind of in their best spaces. And I think that lasted into singularity. I think, you know, I think singularity has made us top form as a band. I think we were firing on all cylinders musically for sure. But I think that, you know, it was just one of those things where the guys were really, really well together at that time. Yeah. So it's not, I just want to emphasize that, you know, I remember just like Jacob and Dave talked about the concept of the Everglow and all the guys just kind of working to able to kind of like manifest that idea musically in their own ways. Right. So, yeah, I just think it was like one of those records that kind of, you know, just came together from, I remember pretty easily. Only difficulties we would have are the ones we impose upon ourselves, just kind of make things better, you know. So. Yeah. When I hear the Everglow, when I think of the initial concept before any music is written, it's almost like I can imagine someone saying, what if we had an album that was sort of like a storybook that took you in? It has a very definitive beginning and then a bookend. Mm-hmm. And the art associated with that record coincides with that, with the watercolors and all of the different artistic expressions mm-hmm. associated therein. And that's what I think of as the concept of the album something that makes it unique and stands apart against a lot of albums that were coming out around that time in that particular scene and it doesn't surprise me at all that you all individually had contributions to make this what it was Mm -hmm. based on that one initial simple concept yeah Yeah. i think you know like i said the songs were and like you mentioned that we had we had had songs from the db era that were that were on the everglow so concept of the, uh, the the theme of the record was kind of identified and established after a lot of the songs have been written so in that sense you know part of the creative work was to kind of arrange things and then fill out spaces to kind of complete this kind of you know idea narrative that, that was that was put out there so i think it was just a really fun time and i think that in our own heads we didn't really have any limitations as far as what we were able to try to do that is, the label was entirely behind it. So that time we had signed on a tooth and nail and they were doing really well. I mean, that was the year, I want to say 2005 was the same year that Amber Lynn released. Never Take Friendship Personal. Friendship Personal, Under Oath released Define the Great Line or was it? Uh, no, only They were in safety. between. Yeah, they were in between oh. records because Chasing Safety came out in 2004. I compartmentalized by years. It's the only reason I remember yeah. these things, but Defining the Great Line came out the year after. But you're you're exactly right. Emery put out one of their biggest records, A mm-hmm. Question. Tooth and Nail was just banging on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to mention that because 2005 and 2006, when that Under Earth record came out, I would imagine was thrilling and perhaps even overwhelming at times because the height of tooth and nails popularity, I would say, Mm -hmm. because they're the vehicle that's driving May, but May is having maybe unimaginable success as well. You guys may have been more concerned or more just relegated to thinking about what was happening in the May camp. What was that time like after releasing the Everglow? It was just, yeah, things just got bigger for us. And we were able to kind of, I mean, I remember the, the tour we did, the, was with Mute Math and Sucker Survive, and they were both opening, which is wild to think of, obviously. Mute Math were on to be like, you know, like both bands are just like, you know, monsters, right? Yeah. In the best way. So the fact that we're able to have that tour, I mean, I look back on that as like one of our biggest feats and one of our boldest moves to take those two bands out and open for us. I mean, I think that speaks to our confidence. It was just a, a moment for us to kind of really you know, be like establish like what we wanted to do as a band and what we want, how we want to represent ourselves in ways that were not just about our music, but also the music we wanted to surround ourselves with. We, we took that really seriously. And I remember Rob mentioning Mute Math. I want to say with Rob, he brought Mute Math to our attention. They were in a band before, and I forget 
the name of mute math before they were mute math, but earth suit, I want to say they were called. Mm-hmm. And then we, and so that time they didn't have, you know, no one really knew who mute math was. And so that's why we were able to get them to open like one of three, right? It was a four band tour. So we had one, we, we um, shifted opening acts and then we had mute math and circuit survive the whole thing. And that's circuit survive released to turn maybe. Yeah. Um, so. But uh, yeah. So, you know, that was, and that was a, a headline tour for us. We brought out like moving lights and, you know, big backdrop and all that stuff. And so, yeah. And then, you know, at the same time, Tooth and Nail was having a lot of success with other acts on that front. I mean, we're just kind of in a strong, a strong kind of collective of, of artists and on a label that was doing really, really well at the time. Yeah. So all, all, yeah, all things kind of came together in a good way. And it was a lot of fun. So much fun. Yeah, I'll bet. And thank you for bringing that tour to the masses. Because I remember going <laughs> to that tour. It was a good one. Yeah. You know, I was a huge May fan. I mean, I'm still a massive May fan, have been for years. And Mute Math was relatively unknown. I believe the first time I heard them was on pure volume they had some sort of highlight on pure volume and it was that first dp the collection Mm -hmm. of demos that they released i want to say chaos was the first song i heard but yeah phenomenal band what a great tour what a great package because that's the thing a lot of times i feel like some headliners they bring completely unknown bands Mm -hmm. and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but that was just a great collection of up-and-coming talent i would say and that was also a time we were definitely experiencing the effects of napster Mm -hmm. but not quite yet from an illegal downloading perspective (laughs) albums were still selling like i found out the Uh, other day that Amberlin's top or their highest selling record is Friendship, which I thought was interesting just from a music mm-hmm. industry standpoint after being on a major label for a couple of years and a couple of records. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I think that there's like, and I always I mentioned this on another podcast before. I'd love to do like an exploration of this era just because like you said, I mean, records are still selling. I mean, Best Buy was still, a, I just, I use the example of Best Buy because that was just this massive retailer that still sold a lot of CDs. And I think May did like 24,000 first week of the Everglow. And it was like this kind of twilight where, like you said, we're leading up to this precipice, right? Of, of, of this kind of seismic shift in the industry that kind of um, disadvantaged a lot of bands, us included. But right before that, it was everything was going really well for a lot of bands that were on these kind of smaller indie labels, but still gaining. It was like that kind of era of the OC and One Tree Hill. We had a lot of yeah. bands getting songs on these on these shows. I know May had a song. I, a Skyline Drive, I think, was on One Tree Hill. It's a funny story. I told my mom about it and my, my parents to watch that night because the May song would be on there. And I remember they called me before the song had played. They called me and said, oh, we heard it. And I'm like, no, you didn't. And they, they thought the get up the get up kids had a song on that episode too. And they thought that was the get up kids. <laughs> and they, they they turned it off. They missed it. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. So um, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of bands are doing really well, or at least able to kind of be on the road and they had visibility. And that quickly kind of I don't know if it quickly did. I I just remember that kind of, you know, once we went to Capitol is when everything started kind of the perfect storm kind of started kind of forming. Right. And you had a lot of, you know, labels being bought out, you know, all that stuff. But yeah, up, up before that, like the 2000 to the 2005 or six in the sevens, right. You had this kind of massive explosion of indie, indie rock bands, punk bands and things like that. So yeah, I don't know. I think it's a really interesting era. There's that song. I think it's called Dinosaurs Will Die by No Effects. No Effects song. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's talking about the industry. Mm-hmm. And I've heard him say in interviews when he wrote that song, he was fully confident that the major labels were on their way out. 
because of <laughs> Napster and illegal downloading yeah. and everything. And in a sort of tongue in cheek way, he says, I just didn't expect it to go the other way and kill all the indie labels, yeah. including us. Uh-huh. Like there yeah. was a period of time where he thought Fat Rec was done. And yeah, watch that documentary. They had to scale back. Yeah, they had all its international offices and, and locations had to scale back. And I, there, that's funny, that song. I did a conference in France and I was talking about crowdfunding. And it was like I dealt with like, it was a focus on crowdfunding. But this one presentation used that song in particular, Dinosaurs Will Die. They had the lyrics up on the screen. And it was about DIY culture. And I took a photo of it and I tagged No Effects and I put it on Instagram and they, they shared it. <laughs> it was pretty cool. But yeah, I... I remember that song and, you know, I was never, I wasn't thinking about things like that in terms of like Fat Mike, in terms of the major labels dying, but they came close and a lot of major labels did die. A lot of more subsumed. I mean, Capital being one of them. So, you know, like it was a big deal and they finally found a way to appropriate the very thing that was challenging their hegemony. And that was just kind of, you know, now they're kind of back in control. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, right? The powers mm-hmm. that be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually just listened to the Black Sheep podcast, your interview. I think you guys did it a couple months ago, you and Dave. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it. And I was really doing my damnedest in preparation for this to not <laughs> repeat everything they asked. They did a really good job interviewing you guys. It was fun listening. And you've even mentioned it now that you've said that Singularity is your favorite May album, or maybe it's your mm-hmm. favorite May album. And you've also mentioned that perhaps it didn't click with people right away. Why do you think that is? Was it because of people's expectations after the Everglow? Yeah, I think expectations, which were justified, by the way. You know, you have a record like the Everglow and the Everglow to Singularity. I think it is a pretty abrupt shift in a lot of ways, uh, sonically, aesthetically, stylistically. And that's not a mistake because we wanted to head in a more, in, in a particular direction. I mean, more guitar centric. I remember interviews like, we just went on more of a 90s rock sound. We tried to get Brendan O'Brien to produce it because he did so many record records. And we were all fans of that music. But at the same time, maybe we, we weren't that band. I don't know. I think the record is, how do I put it? I think that there's a lot of depth the record could have had. And it just didn't end up having it. But I think the depth is there. And that's why I say it's my favorite May record. And I've thought about this a lot because people didn't like that record when it came out. It wasn't like they were even on the fence. They just didn't like it. I remember one time we played Rocket and that's a song on Singularity. And some kid came up to Rob and said, don't open with that song. Like, don't do that ever. Like told him that, they, that we shouldn't play that song ever again. And it's kind of interesting to think fans think they can say. Like, that's pretty wild. I remember... I remember this is a, a sidebar. I apologize, but years ago, my, a friend of mine, uh, we went and saw Saves the Day in St. Pete, and that was when Dave was still in the band. I think it was like in Reverie era, uh-huh. um, maybe post in Reverie, Sound the Alarm era type stuff. I can't really remember, but some guy went up to Chris after the song and like just told him how like he didn't like the new stuff at all, and like it was just like really kind of a bummer to Chris and that kind of thing. It's just like. And then, you know, Chris is like, he didn't hang out afterward. Like everyone else hanging out, but he wasn't hanging out because he's bummed. And that's, you know, I always say these stories to the anecdotes and if everyone's listening, you know, my memory might be shoddy, but that's how I remember this, you know, I remember it happening, right? All that to say, you know, fans were not happy with it. And I understand why. I don't think it offered the kind of meaningful, I don't know, uh, how, how do I put this? It's just to have the, the vibe that everyone did. It was much more aggressive. And I think it was more guitar driven. It didn't allow for enough breathing space. But I think also the way it just was recorded, you know, 
And it was our intent to kind of make a rock record. And yeah, I, I remember the demos we had, we made demos and the demos were way different. And, you know, that's not to say things got out of our hands or out of control. It's, well, we, we made the record we wanted to make. And I think that people just didn't connect with it because maybe there wasn't as much to connect with so easily and so quickly and so clearly. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I think the songs are super, super strong. I think that our playing is at its best, right? I think it's really, really strong. I think, I mean, in particular, I always want to talk about Mark's bass playing is so good on that record. And yeah, and then people didn't like it. And then it was the tours we did, or, you know, I, I just don't, I just don't think at the time things were clicking with the audience. And of course, I'm, I'm speaking generally. I'm sure some people liked the record when it came out. So some of those things, I'm glad we did it. You know, I'm glad that we made the record we did. And, you know, it was just one of those things that didn't turn out the way we wanted it to. And at the, at the same time, I mean, there are industrial shifts happening that, that kind of curbed uh, a lot of the promotional efforts that were going to go into the record. And there's just like that kind of a, a, a not knowing what to do with the record. I mean, the the, the single was uh, Sometimes I Can't Make It Alone. I think there are stronger songs on the record. We toured with The Fray. So like it was like a hard rock record, but then we toured with like a kind of an adult contemporary radio rock band which we're thankful for as well. And OK Go was on that tour and it was super rad. But just like stylistically, it was difficult, you know, to kind sure. of fit with. Uh... So, yeah, I don't know. I love the record, but there's a lot of things that were going on in the band at the time um, that made it just strenuous. Personal relationships weren't that strong or as strong as they could have been. And there was, for the first time, I think we we're maybe doubting ourselves a little bit. We were working isolated. We were living isolated. We had two apartments at the time. So we weren't all together like we were for the Everglow. And the studio, Dave would be upstairs doing vocals. I would be in the studio doing guitars. Jacob was already done at this point. Rob was like in a space that he had to carve out for himself. You know, so there's just like a working environment that wasn't as conducive to community and togetherness, which I think we would have benefited from as well. So like, I always kind of like cycling a lot of these factors not psychoanalyze, but just critically analyze these factors that I think contributed sure. to certain kind of things that I hear and maybe, you know, that, that I hear in the record just to kind of try to make sense of it uh, years later, you know? I think the record cover is super cool. I love that we went from something as rich and colorful as the Everglow to something as sparse and one-dimensional as uh, the cover image anyway of Singularity. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I like that too. You know... I remember listening to the record and recognizing the stylistic difference, but I still liked it. As a fan of May, I was still a fan of the record. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a true testament to just how much people connected to the Everglow. And that could be the case for a lot of albums and bands, you know? Mm -hmm. It's also about timing too. You know, we just mentioned no effects and I wasn't planning on mm -hmm. mentioning this, but I don't know, it's just coming to me. I'm thinking of my first introduction to no effects was Punk and Drublick as it was for mm -hmm. a lot of people. And I'm 37, so I think it's that's the timing of it too. You know, that's when mm -hmm. I was discovering punk music and all that stuff. And I remember really loving Heavy Petting Zoo. Mm, I love that record. Yeah, I do too. And it was a bit of a departure. Mm -hmm. Then they followed it up with So Long pretty quickly after, which for a lot of people, that's like their opus. Mm -hmm. Myself included, that might be my favorite NoFX record. But I listened to a song like Brink of Disaster. I've got a lot of playlists and stuff. Brink of Disaster, my algorithm really likes that song. So that one comes <laughs> up a lot. And I love that song. It's just a great opener, a great album opener. I could put that against a song like Anything or even Someone Else's Arms, and it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Um, there's elements of May that are within singularity that I think people can attach themselves to, but it makes me wonder if it was 
something shifting within the industry Mm -hmm. because things feel, I don't know if it was just my life, but things from 2007 to 2012 were weird. So I don't know. I don't know, man. Like pop punk was having a resurgence then. It was kind of a weird time in the industry in and of itself. Yeah, you're right. And I think for a lot of bands, they're going into this kind of you know, different phase creatively that was more, you know, we were kids and we were growing up, you know, so you start to make, you start to think about things differently and creatively. I think that the songs like Reflections, the last track on Singularity and before um, the secret track at the end, I think that's one of, that's one of my favorite May songs. I think it's the lyrically, it's super strong. I think sonically, musically, vibe-wise, it's super strong. And some of my favorite May songs are from the sessions. There's a song called Novocaine that is not on the US release. I think it's on the Japanese release of that record. It's my favorite May song. And Kenna, who's another artist from Virginia, sings on that song. And I think it's such a really cool song. I don't know, like I think in retrospect that the record's not so out of left field, but I think at the time people's expectations almost created, yeah, it's people's expectations just didn't meet those expectations. It was definitely less piano based, but at the same time, I mean, Rob's presence on the record, it fits exactly what the record was doing which is something more like a little more brace i've used the, the moog a lot more mm-hmm. and he wrote the riff for not the first track because that's bring disaster but there's a song that if you reverse on the cd and one of those secret tracks we used to do you reverse on the cd yeah and um he wrote a riff on that song i think it was all on last transmission one mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i don't know you're right i mean i think that there are a lot of things that make us interpret a piece of music in one way or another and a lot of it has to do with our history with the band and your the way your fandom's involved in your own experience in your life and, and where you are when you when you you know when you hear something so and i think for that reason i'll go back and there are bands i'm not that into yet but i'll just keep trying despite it not clicking yet and i think that you know i think it's an interesting thing about listening to music and liking music is it depends on so much more than the music itself it depends on a lot of other factors so yeah i mean i think things are just a bit a bit misaligned with singularity and i think time has been okay it's, it's done well it's aged well i think more people are talking about they like it now than ever yeah. um, so i mean yeah you know i i, I love heavy pennies you too just to bring back to no effects and uh it's a good example because I mean, they, they talk about how that, that record, no one liked that record a lot, right? I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. They do talk about that, but <laughs> maybe that's part of it too. When I hear people say that, it always makes me want to revisit whatever record they're talking about. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I also like, I always want to kind of try to find ways to appreciate records that people generally don't like. There's a replacements record. I think it's called Don't Tell the Soul. I don't want to make it, yeah. I don't want to get it wrong. But that was one, that was one of the first records I liked by the replacements. And I don't know if I love it still, but I remember listening to the first time. I was like, man, I like this record. I don't know. Yeah. I kind of like always want to listen to the records that artists like the most, but that maybe fans didn't like as much. Yeah. I totally understand what you mean. And if I ever see May again, which I hope I do, I hope I get to see you guys play live again. If you guys play Six Semper, I'll be stoked. (laughs) (laughs) Man, that's so wild. We've like, I'm walking into my room so sorry it gets dark. Um, Yeah, Yeah, no worries. I've, I don't know if we've ever played that song live and if we have maybe only once or twice like we've really I mean that song is really hard to remember because I think we go through almost every note on the scale that we were playing on in the key that we were playing in that's like amazing. we just we just really kind of went ridiculous and if you listen to the chorus and the octaves like it's just like all over the place mark wrote the verse for that song musically we put it in four it was in a weird time signature before that so yeah i mean that song is like wild 
It's a ripper. <laughs> it's a ripper for sure. So you just mentioned the demos were a little bit different. Mm-hmm. In what other way were they different? Um, you know, I think that we were what what singularity was it? What what this the recording singularity is? These songs stripped down a whole lot in terms of busyness, right? And I think that's Howard Benson was the producer, and he had this at least part of his motivation, not all of it, but at least part of the re- what his he thought his goal was not just in terms of May, maybe, but in terms of as a producer in general. Is like we want people to hear and like the song as quickly as possible. So like he had this kind of very like radio mindset, you know, mm-hmm. it's like. You know, we want people to like when they hear the song being played in a car radio, they hear something they like. So, you know, for example, if you know the intro of Brigger Disaster, drum wise, right? Drum wise is very, very simple. It's just like kick, and it like just super, super pared down, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember the original version was like, like just a lot of, lot more kick. Right, so it's a mm-hmm. much more complex bass groove, uh, drum groove. And the first thing I remember, the first one of the first things Howard said was, you know, let's we really have to kind of like simplify this drum beat a, l- a lot more. I, th- I remember "Release Me" being a lot that song as well, being pared down a whole lot for the studio for the for the for the record. And and saying this, if people hear it, maybe they think that's an example of a major label being a major label. I've never thought of that experience as being dumbed down by capital really at all. Obviously, the R&R has suggestions, but when it came to being in the studio, most of it was like, you know, we signed on to go to a major label for a reason. And we wanted the record to be as big as it possibly could be. And we were able, you know, and we all love pop music. So uh, there wasn't really kind of an artistic tension in terms of our mindsets going into it. And so, yeah, the the songs changed some, but, you know, we also had Howard Benson, whose work speaks for itself in terms of the success he's had, right? So who are we to kind of hire Howard Benson and then like challenge really strongly what he says? And yeah, there were conversations we had, but, you know, the record is a May record in the sense that we, you know, we were there and we were making the record and there's a decision to be made. And again, I think the record in that sense is probably better for it. At the same time, I think there's like certain things that maybe we could have kept in that, that were more, you know, May-esque that maybe kind of older our, our fans heard and maybe recognized. You know, I think if you have a song like Telescopes or a song like Six Semper, they're almost hard to recognize. And if you think about May in terms of Destination Beautiful, never sure. blow. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, you know, I remember there were particular changes. I remember the drum groove on Release Me. I feel like this, the hi-hat groove was like in 16th initially for a certain part. And we took that away. So, the, you know, that's all I remember being uh, changing around. And they were just trying to make the songs more immediately recognizable and, and understandable, I guess, is a way to put it. I mean, Digestible. and that's one of the reasons like, yeah, I like punk rock so much is because... <laughs> I just want the songs to start immediately. Mm-hmm. Like when I hear an intro, like I have to be in a particular mindset to kind of really want to hear a long intro. Mm-hmm. I just want the song to start, right? I want to yeah. hear the vocal melody right away. I want to get, you know, and I think that singularity, it's not, I'm not saying it's a punk rock record. I'm saying that there's like a logic there that we wanted to kind of hit people strong and, and get there quick to kind yeah. of like bring them into a spot where they're somewhere pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Bring Disaster is a super strong song. I think on top, I think the songs are strong. There's something that's kind of, you know, it's so interesting to still listen to this day. Like, what am I hearing? And, you know, like, it's just a wild kind of experience even to this day to listen to that record. Yeah, still sounds great. Sonically, I mean. Yeah, it's, it sounds label. great. It does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they different guitar tones, yeah. 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 And, you know, all those things. I, they spent almost a million dollars on that record, which at the time, that was probably one of the last records 
they spend that much money on yeah like eight hundred thousand dollars or something um and the guitar wise you know like i had there were no limits to what i could pick to choose from yeah it was like it was a major label record in every way you know even down to the the ultimate failure of the record (laughs) (laughs) in their eyes too right because i mean the major specifically in their eyes that's to say that I don't consider the record a failure at all, but yeah. industrially speaking, you know, in terms of what they expected. Right. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny how those expectations have shifted and changed over the years yeah. too, over the decades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned Brendan O'Brien. That probably would have been an interesting thing. I know you're a big Pearl Jam fan, so that would have been mm-hmm. really cool. I yeah. I mean, we were all Pearl Jam fans and that was, I, I remember him being our first, our first pick. I might be wrong though. Were we, there any we other names about... thrown in the mix? Yes. Or? I think we were talking about Eric Valentine. Okay. I just done and, Taking Back Sunday. Yeah, I think we liked him from uh, his work with. I want to say he's he's done work with um, Third Eye Blind. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Also, Garth Richardson, I think was was a name we had in our list. He has done work. Let me see what he did. I have to go back here. Chili Peppers, Melvin's Rage. I think from his work with Rage. Yeah. So there were definitely. What is the name? Koski. I don't know. There are definitely some some names were thrown around that you know at the time. I remember us being suspicious because Capital at that point had done a lot of. They had had a lot of success with uh, Howard Benson so far, Mm -hmm. and you know everyone wasn't available. But Howard Benson was somehow available. As successful as he was, Mm -hmm. you know he was available for the record. And I you know I always wondered like you know I really wish I could have pushed. For ultimately, I think Howard Benson was a good producer for the record, and it's not. So when I'm saying this, I'm not trying to express any kind of regret at how it happened or for Howard Benson. I think he understood. He 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 pushed us in a tough but good direction. But I remember, I mean, I would have loved to work with Bruno Bryan just because I'm a massive Pearl Jam fan. It would have been really cool to at least, at the very least, hear hear stories. You know? yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> and then you guys went on to release the EPs amongst mm-hmm. a lot of tours and things. And I remember seeing you guys on tour around that time. The podcast that I listened to you and Dave on, he mentions that you guys were kind of rebelling against the major label after leaving Capitol. Mm-hmm. Was there a point afterwards where after releasing the EPs that being in May didn't feel sustainable? Is that why the hiatus or did you guys just need a break? I think it was a combination, I think. I mean, with the EPs, I don't remember it being like an intentional kind of like rebellion. And I don't want to presume that Dave meant one thing by that word. I, I remember being feeling really free. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to worry about those constraints. And so it's not to say, you know, so in that sense, like our approach wasn't limited. So if we wanted to make a song that was six minutes long, we would make a song that was six minutes long. It wasn't like, mm-hmm. that's how we were kind of thinking. But I think what became unsustainable for us was the fact that we tried to, well, there's a number of factors. First factor was that we were in debt and we didn't realize how in debt we were until one day in Atlanta, we were on a bus. So it made the, the salt in the wound was even more intense. It was on the tour with Amberlynn and Motion City Soundtrack. And our CPA at the time came on the bus and he said, you guys are like in 85 thousand dollars worth of debt and that was hard to hear because we didn't know we just didn't know and for whatever reason we were uninformed on that so it was sobering to say the least and we just felt like jackasses there on a, on a bus just bleeding money you know and after that yeah it just kind of there's a lot of soul searching at that moment for the band in terms of what to do after that and so in a way i mean it was it was a reaction it was kind of like a, we've been in this world for a while and 
at the time, it just wasn't going well. It wasn't bringing joy. It was more stress than anything else. And so that was a way for us just to kind of like eschew all those expectations and do things ourselves the way we wanted to do them. And also just kind of, you know, that's when, so that was probably in 2008 when that happened. And then in 2009 is when we started releasing the song for month. And we were at the time we were doing, we were in debt. And then at the same time, we were donating all profits all revenue from these songs to charity organizations. Wow. And I think to this day, that's one of the coolest things we attempted to do. And we did for a few months, but then it, be, it readily became unsustainable, because obviously, I don't know what we were thinking at the time, but <laughs> of course. And so we ended up just doing proceeds and so we could still sustain ourselves. And we were able to kind of pour ourselves out of debt. We got into a van. We did all these very, very humbling things, but we continued to tour. And I think looking back on that era is like something I'm really proud of just because we're able to get ourselves out of debt just by touring in a van. And also like with the decisions we made regarding the the charity organizations and stuff like that. And we were doing, you know, we were donating money to charity organizations nationally, but we were also arranging local charity efforts for every show on the tour. So we would go into a town and we'd probably, you know, we'd arrange the travel to be there like to some early time so we could do the charity events or like, you know, like clean something up or work at a, a food kitchen, something like that, you know? And so we were doing, we were committing ourselves to this idea we had of community. In a way that was pretty intense because we were at that time, we were managing ourselves. Eve was still bringing our tours. We were at a label. We had help from our friend, John Frazier, who had been with us. You know, he had met the band back, you know, before... I was even in the band. And so, you know, we put records out, our music got on sell records, which was our kind of label. And yeah, I mean, we kind of really did the whole DIY thing as much as you as you could after being in a band that had every part of the team filled out. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah. And so we got to a point where we weren't in debt anymore. And then we just continued. And you know, I think as tough as those years were, it was also, you know, really rewarding and fulfilling it in ways. So yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, in ways that extend. And that's pretty punk rock too. I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> if I'm going to bring anything to the May camp, like it's this idea of punk rock. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, we kind of, that's not to say this is like my doing it all, but just like this idea we had to kind of like commit ourselves. And I think commitment, even to the irrational, to an irrational degree is really appealing and it's really admirable. And I think that for us, that was a very radical commitment to do these songs month to month and to reorient the whole way we work as a band in a way that served others as much as it could, not only nationally, not only through just giving money, which is admirable. And, you know, that, again, like we just wanted to do more and more as much as we could to kind of really kind of, you know, walk the walk, so to speak. And it was a tough kind of era, but it was also really rewarding. And, you know, we brought out some old friends that we had to be in the band, you know, because we needed Robin Marco left at that time. So, yeah, it was wild, wild time. And, yeah. and it ended up being these three EPs that also have some of my favorite May songs in the collection of those EPs for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, they're great. And I noticed in preparation for this, I was looking on Spotify. You you guys combine them all on Spotify. Yeah, we combined them all. I think that's a good idea. Um, and we released all of them on vinyl, like this kind of tri-disc, three-disc LP situation. Cool. Um, and yeah, I think man, I think a song like I Just Need You to Know is, you know, and, um, especially, and particularly Evening. I think Evening's a, a really great EP, but they're all good to me, you know. Yeah. As biased as it may be. Absolutely. I agree. There's some quintessential May in there, for sure. For sure, and- yeah. 
those tours were a lot of fun. The lights, the production mm-hmm. that you guys did. I mean, yeah. fact, you guys played the record bar in Kansas City, which is oh, yeah. probably maybe 500 people. And that place was filled to the brim. You literally couldn't even walk in that place. It was so full. Man, I loved I loved the record bar. I love I loved Midwest cities and Kansas City in particular. I remember that place for sure. Yeah, I'm actually in Lawrence right now. You mentioned the get a Oh, dude, I love Lawrence. So the Granada is one of our favorite places to play. Yeah, that was actually yeah. the last time I saw you guys play on the Everglow anniversary tour. Yeah, super. I was so sick that night. I remember. Oh, I was, really? Yeah, I was so sick. It was tough for me to make it through the night for sure. Oh, well, you did well. It was a <laughs> great <you>. show. <laughs> I think I still have some videos on my phone from that show, that particular oh, nice. show. Well, cool. That's great. And I'm sure during that time period, it was life-giving doing all those things and like you said, committing to something that felt like this idea that made you feel good, made it seem as though the band had a sense of purpose. And May's always been a very, I think, intentional band and oh yeah, and a band that's very aware. It's a good way to put it, intentional. I mean, when we do something, it is something that we commit to doing. And I think all three of us understand how music is this kind of way of being in the world. And so for us, we just kind of wanted to take that idea and literally extend it into other parts of our lives and the lives of others, even those who might not know or care about who May is, but at least offer service, you know, in some small way to that end. I think we, it was, yeah, it was a learning experience and and the best way. And that was a weird time for all of us. I mean, we're just kind of, I'd, I think I'd started seeing the girl who, Ellen, the one I'm married to now, I think we had started dating. So all this kind of tumultuous, kind of not, not tumult, but just change, you know, like these yeah. kind of thinking about what we're going to do after May, potentially, like all this kind of the, like the end of May was like this kind of thing. And not just because we started to think about the reality of not this kind of unsustainable dimension, right? Of what mm-hmm. we're going to do and how do we kind of approach this in a way that's sensible. So it's had to give all the money away to charity. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah, it is admirable for sure. And you kind of mentioned your time during the break there was the hiatus and then you guys announced that you'd be getting back together to mm-hmm. play some shows and we got a new May record, which is really cool. Yeah. The uh, multi-sensory aesthetic experience. Titled, yeah. um, I love the artwork too. Really cool artwork. Melissa McCracken's brilliant. And I'm so glad that she was able to do the cover. And that record was, you know, that record for me was one of the ones where I, we were living in different parts of the country at the time. And I was in Virginia. Jacob was in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. and Dave's in Nashville. So that record was really a, a disjointed process for me, just because I have to go in and fly in. I was working at the time. That was really tough. Trying to get into the same creative headspace that I felt that the guys were in. Because by this time, I started playing, I started this band called Demons, and they're like a hard punk rock band. And so I kind of started gravitating towards heavier music again. And in terms of my own identity as a music listener, as someone who played music, as someone who was a husband and a father, it was tough to kind of feel like I belonged. I, you know, it's weird because kind of feel a little bit like an outcast because not an outcast, but someone who's just not as present because literally I wasn't as present. I mean, when I, even when I was in Nashville for the four or five days I'd be in Nashville, I have to work in the morning on my computer. When I was falling asleep, I always fall asleep and the guys work late. Like there's all these just kind of like difficulties for me. And 
in that process, you know, so the record's a really beautiful record, I think, but I just, uh, the memories of making that record is kind of like really strange, not necessarily a bad or negative way, but just in a way that's like, okay, well, to try to remember what was happening was tough just because so much was happening at the time for that record. So yeah, that was an interesting record. It's a great record. Yeah, it is. Just sounds like there was a lot of competing elements, which I feel as being an adult, there's more and more push-pull dynamics of Mm -hmm. competing elements when you're trying to be creative. Yeah, Yeah, there is, especially because, you know, you always, I I still to this day, I'm 40 years old. I've been playing music full time since, you know, my early 20s. I still have this kind of sense of imposter syndrome where I don't feel, I I feel like I need to kind of justify my place wherever I am, right? And that's not a result of anyone's actions or words. It's a result of my own. We all have our own psyches. And so with that record, by that time, I mean, Dave is at this point is like basically a multi-instrumentalist and I'm just a guitar player, right? You're more than that, Zach. <laughs> That's very sweet of you, Kyle. Um, and I don't mean to be like, you know, self-deprecating in the kind of cringy sense. I just mean, I mean to say, yeah, I'm a guitar player. And Dave, by this time, he was thinking like a producer because he produced the record. He was thinking like a songwriter. He was thinking like a keyboard player. He's thinking like a drummer. He's just kind of in that space. The studio is Dave's space. Right. Mm-hmm. So I felt I would go into the studio and I just really wanted to kind of get to where he was. But, you know, it was always a catch up situation for me. Right. And, you know, I just think, OK, well, like, what's my role here? You, you mentioned earlier about me coming into the band initially with the Everglow and kind of finding my creative place there. I, I, I feel like it might have been more difficult to, for me to kind of find a creative space for the, that, the, the multi-sensory experience record just for a number of factors. I mean, I think a big part of it was we don't live in the same space. And so it's not as if we're writing songs together. It's more like we're creating songs together. But that makes sense. And for me to get and kind of understand what I Number one, what I would want to do to make the song better, but also, you know, the limitations of the approach to the song, you know, because like I said, Dave has an idea of where he wants the song to go. And I definitely don't want to paint the picture as like this kind of tense setting. It was actually a very warm and welcome and very open setting. It was just my own wrestlings with what I wanted to do. And, you know, I had this guitar, but there are all these keyboards around like, you know, what can I do here to kind of make things better? And I'm sure that if you talk to Dave or Jacob, they would have a different and perhaps more favorable or more charitable account of my presence during these sessions. But I'm just thinking about like where I was mentally and emotionally. I think we're all in tough spots. I mean, for sure. So I also don't want to isolate myself as the one only having these struggles. I think we all were just kind of in spaces, but for the studio, that's Dave's space and it was his studio. And so what he, what he was able to do there was was really cool. But now I'm just kind of glad I got to be a part of it in my own way. And I think, you know, songs like uh, Sing and uh, Let It Die, Fall and Hesitate, really, really cool tracks. Yeah. Do you think that will change on the next iteration of May Music? I don't know. Is there a way to shift the process a little bit? <sighs> Maybe if, I, I mean, I, I can only speak about the situation right now. It's like, it's just, as a band, it's just hard because, you know, we're all just kind of so deeply involved in our personal lives. You know, for me to kind of go somewhere else and write a record for however long it's going to take, you know, I have to rearrange my whole life here. That's just a tough thing. It's not impossible, but, you know, right now, like, you know, these shows we have coming up in fall and I'm going to be away so much during the fall. I'm really excited about it, but I'm also really just kind of thinking, okay, well, how am I going to arrange school schedules? Because I have classes from one to few Thursday. I have a job at a record store. I'm a dad. I'm a partner. Finding ways to kind of make all the stuff work while you're away so much yeah it gives me some anxiety so there's just like a that question just like requires it's kind of uh you know i don't know it's just a, i don't know situation because yeah 
I like the idea of being able to kind of go somewhere and do things in the quote unquote traditional way. By that, I mean, let's go to a studio and just live there right. and, and write a record. You know, that's really romantic for me. I like that idea. So it just seems more and more both unrealistic, but also not necessary in the sense of like we have the technology we have now that you don't really need the technology as much, maybe it's good for the space, for the process, but people work in different ways. And, you know, I think some people can just work in whatever environment they're in. And I think that you have a mindset to take advantage of the opportunities presented by new experiences and new environments, but also people that kind of like get more uncomfortable in new environments. It's just one of those dynamics that kind of shift and change. So I don't know what a new metal record looks like at the moment, but in that sense, it could look like anything. Sure. That's a liberating place to be. Yeah. <laughs> it is <laughs> it liberating. Look like anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's a rad tour. Sadly, it's not coming here, but certainly worth a road trip. I'm really excited. I love that Julian Theory record, and I've only seen them. I mean, I saw them on that tour years ago when they were at the social in Orlando. And I'm really excited to hang with those guys and, you know, getting to play the Roxy again, which would be really fun. And then he's guitar playing. They're really cool. I'm excited for it. And to anyone listening, tickets are still available. VIP passes, please go to our Instagram and, uh, Check it out. Yeah, well worth it. I mean, geez, after the year and a half we just had, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting VIP on everything. Let's do it. Nice. Um, like we're gonna go all out for these shows and just <laughs> celebrate life so and fun. music. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I mean, yeah. literally this morning I was I went over to an old friend's house and we're gonna basically re-record an old demo idea that we have just because it's fun and uh-huh. just getting in the same room together and hanging out. Just an excuse for that. But I think. COVID made me yearn for some of that stuff a little bit, you know? Yeah, I, my band Demons just played our first show in over a year. And right. the energy was like super, it's just like a positive anxiety, you know? Um, and a lot of people came out and it was so fun. So, that, you know, it'll be interesting to see how people are just going to have like, how people react to being in this space again. And public spaces, listening to music is going to be a powerful thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Positive anxiety. I think that's excitement maybe (laughs) (laughs) i think that's what that means it's funny yeah (laughs) well it's kind of like i think about when they say the structures of the brain it's reminiscent of anxiety but it could just be excitement at the same time you just don't know so you try to just tell yourself it's excitement you know if not you're just having panic attacks all day but no yeah my Sarah Kierkegaard is one of my favorite philosophers he calls anxiety the dizziness of freedom and so (laughs) you know freedom's a positive thing but it can manifest in weird ways and so, yeah, so it's like, okay, well, positive anxiety could be just excitement. <laughs> Simple as that. My partner, she has a couple kids and they're at the phase now where I think some anxiety manifests mm-hmm. for things. Her daughter's seven and we're trying to exercise neuroplasticity and just say, whenever you feel anxious, just tell yourself you're excited, you know, don't neglect, <laughs> don't neglect, <laughs> don't neglect what you're feeling, but yeah. Just, Say you're excited and reframe it. Yeah, no, it's funny. My daughter's five and you can see her anxiety play out in almost like a way that where she just like will do, she'll busy herself in non-productive ways. If she's cleaning something and she feels like she's in trouble, she'll just not know how to clean it. She'll give herself obstacles. And it's like, I feel like it's an expression of anxiety. She'll wring her hands a whole lot. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's really kind of interesting to see when this dimension of ex- existence and experience begins to manifest in these poor children. Because <laughs> oh my goodness, what am I feeling like? <laughs> yeah, maybe our generation's more hyper aware of it for whatever reason. 
Yeah, I think there. Yeah, I mean that's another discussion entirely. And there's this movie. I can't ever think of the movie, but it talks about how his generation has the time to be sad, where his parents' generation didn't have that time. They didn't have the luxury of kind of reflecting on our condition because they had to work or they had toil or whatever, what have you. So like this idea yeah. of awareness and the way labor has shifted and expectations and now you know communication access, mm-hmm. all this stuff kind of reorients our approach and understanding to these issues that perhaps in, the, in previous times were just dismissed as a problem to be overcome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. And perhaps even dismissed. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say too, I'm sure we could have a, an entirely other conversation, maybe for another time, different podcasts. Yeah. Actually, I really enjoy your posts on social media. I've been following you for maybe a year just shabby mm-hmm. year, maybe. And I've always sort of viewed the way you approach posting on social media as the way you described it succinctly the other day. And if you don't mind, I just want to paraphrase something mm-hmm. you said, and I condensed it. So they, and in parentheses, meaning claims or posts or things that you say on social media are manifestations of a process that will never cease, a process that will continuously involve missteps and reveal blind spots and their steps in a process vocalizing these steps in the process may be obnoxious but for me it helps it helps organize it helps critical self-reflection and this kind of displays at least for me or it shows a level of humility in that you're genuinely interested in learning and can you speak about that a little bit? I mean, I know that's kind of open-ended, but I really appreciated that just because I think there's so many people out there, they're not necessarily thinking of this as like this lifelong learning experience mm-hmm. when they ask questions or even make proclamations that are meant to invoke a discussion of some type. Yeah, I think that I was just thinking that I'm 40 and I'm just now beginning to understand the ways that certain logics or systems can influence the way we think and see the world. And in particular, when you think about things like sexism and misogyny and racism, oftentimes we're just simply unaware of the ways that those forces work upon us and the ways those forces kind of influence us to see the world in particular ways and see our actions and and, and expressions and thoughts in certain ways. Being that, okay, you know, I probably have expressed problematic ideas into my 30s right? Out of pure ignorance, right? And this is not to excuse ignorance, especially now because I think we have access to so much information, but I do not want to dismiss or undermine or neglect how the ways we think is a reflection of our experiences in the world. So to learn about the things I'm learning about now, just through reading, and then to think myself in my twenties, is just a radically different person, right? And a lot of the ways I'm able to do that, or part of that process for me in particular, is kind of going through social media. And I say that I said that because I think it can be obnoxious. And I think that my presence is probably something that puts people off a lot of ways. And, and you know, and it's to say that, like, I'm angry. I'm an angry. Uh, I'm angry at certain things. Um, I think it's like a kind of a, a, a part of my disposition. And so a lot of times I think that kind of comes through in my in my posts. And so yeah, it's just like the scene like, well, like, what I'm doing here is not necessarily making claims. It's almost to be like a way of thinking through information, a way of thinking through my experience. And I think that's one of the benefits of the social media platform, as toxic as they can be you know, for sure. There's a visibility to them. There's a performativity that's kind of a a part of our presence in social media. But at the same time, you know, I think that it allows me personally to kind of, if I see something I say, it allows me to kind of think through it differently and say, okay, well, that seems absurd. That seems ridiculous. 
or that seems like something that makes sense. And I think that I think people react strong. And I think people react to, okay, well, like if I'm speaking as someone who, like I said in that in that post you're referring to as like a mis- you know, cisgendered heterosexual white male, right? So my comments and my commentary on these experiences can seem to be overstepping. They can seem to be reflective of a problem of this kind of overly performal white liberal, all of these complexities that there are too many to really name these nuances that can kind of reflect the same problems I'm claiming to try to think through. I want to be aware of those things, right? And I think it's just a recognition of the fact that, you know, we should extend grace, but also hold each other accountable in ways that hopefully influence change, not necessarily shut people down or, or and, and again, that's something I'm probably guilty of in a lot of ways because my post can be more expressive in that sense. But I don't know. I I think that if I'm someone just now learning about something like racecraft or something like I'm reading a book now called The Promise of Happiness and the experience and how the turn the idea of happiness manifest or 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 plays into the experience of marginalized communities in a way that's entirely different than the way happiness plays into my life, right? I think it's really important to go through those kind of those thoughts. And I think for me, uh, doing that on social media is a way for me to do so because I have friends and peers on in these platforms that respond. Right. And in most times they're supportive, thankfully, but also there are people say, Hey, you know, I was talking about the Israeli and Palestinian dynamic recently. And I've really slowed my role in that because I really un- want to understand now how anti-Semitism might play into what I'm saying or how I might be doing the, I don't want to come off in particular ways. It's an awareness. Right. Sure. So I still have the same ideas and thoughts on the whole conflict. But at the same time, I was referred to someone called me an anti-Semite and that's something that I've never considered. Right. But it deserves to be taken seriously. Right. And so do I agree with the person's claim? No, but maybe it's because they don't know where I'm thinking. So this, you, you enter into this kind of, okay, well, here we have this situation where we're at this kind of impasse, right? This kind of yeah. like subjective impasse where we don't know what all to say. Yes, that. I am right. <laughs> Zach, <All> I, right. <laughs> I appreciate that thoughtful answer. And I'm right there with you. I'm following everything you're saying. And I find myself in similar thought processes, I think. Less so scenarios because with Facebook, I tend to not rock the boat. Man, mm-hmm. I want to some days. I really want to. <laughs> but I sort of made a conscious decision a few years ago that on Facebook, I was going to primarily speak to things related to what I do for a living mm-hmm. as a means to kind of market. And there's like an internal story struggle within me on certain days with that as well. And sometimes I feel like I really need to speak my mind on this particular platform, but everything you just said, I appreciate. And I appreciate reading your thoughts because it helps me organize my thoughts, you know? And I think that's, like you said, as toxic as social media can be, maybe that's something that's happening with other people. I hope it is, you know, because I know the reactive nature of people when they see things and how they interpret things when they see it on the internet or social media, a lot of times that can, there's a lot of cognitive biases that can really take hold Mm -hmm. of people and people really dig in their heels. So I appreciate you answering that. I mean, it's definitely, there's a breadth of topics there that we could go into. I do think it is, it's helpful, especially for people who are open and willing to learn. And I think that's where humility comes in. And there has to be a certain semblance of humility in order to learn. We have a collective of people who are trying to do that. That's a good thing. Hopefully we can evolve as a species with just a small subset of the population being open and willing to learn or change their mind a little bit. I mean, there's so much that I'm not hopeful about, but there's so much that, you know, you do see a shift and a generational shift happening with, with how people understand different 
different lifestyles, different, you know, like, you know, for example, pride and um, these, the very thing that makes me kind of scoff sometimes like pride month that's been so commodified is at the same time, a testament to how much work has paid off of those that have done work prior that have been, you know, attacked that have been imprisoned, that have been the, the work of that community itself. Right. Those in the, the LGBTQ plus community have done all this work for so many years that have gone unrecognized and dismissed all this stuff. But now we have Pride Month and that's a, as appropriated as it, has, as it has become. It's also a result of the work these people in the community have done. And so that is where like, OK, well, I have my kind of scoffy, stupid kind of reactionary takes on these kind of things. But we have to be careful not to dismiss the work that has gone on for years right? Yeah. Like people of color, uh, marginalized communities. And I think that my my main kind of bottom line here is that, you know, people always say, well, you have to read everything from every perspective. And there's a value in that, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I also think that's a way to kind of silence or undermine the views and the experiences of marginalized communities, only because my experience as the narratives we were given are reflective of this kind of patriarchal white dimension, right? So like that is something I have been fed already. So to that, that's the world I've lived in. Yeah. Right. And for better or worse, it's not to say that, you know, there, you know, we can talk about the differences between white supremacy, bigotry, and racism. And in which there are kind of nuances we could talk about in terms of how to understand people's behavior and thoughts and words. But you know what is just now giving people anxiety is the fact that these communities are now now have the platforms that they have that they've been able to appropriate and utilize for to increase their representation, to claim their identity, to claim their existence, to claim their experiences in ways that they didn't have before. And so that is what I'm learning about the way that I've, you know, I remember, and I said this in the post, and this was something that's very powerful to me. I'm saying it here because as someone who wants to kind of focus on the experience and be someone who is an ally, quote unquote, so often, you know, James Baldwin said this, he's like, for, you know, for the white liberal, that is someone like I would I call myself, right? So again, I'm kind of reflecting back on my own positions here. Mm-hmm. And they make a, a symbol out of the black person, of the black man. So the the everyday life of an individual, of a person is made into something and given a value that potentially kind of disrupts it and makes it more dangerous for that person to exist, right? It's like, look, all, and this is Baldwin again, right? like, oh, we just want to kind of be here. Mm-hmm. But even the people who are supposedly fighting for us at the same time, put us in positions that are kind of out, you know, the, perhaps, you know, are speaking out of turn here, you know? Yeah. So yes, there's a complexity that I always want to kind of explore. And, you know, even now I'm going to be thinking about what I've said to you in the past 10 minutes and probably grill, you know, it's like, you know, one of those things where, you know, you want to speak in turn and you want to speak with, with sensitivity and awareness. So yeah, that that's for me is a way that kind of social media reveals certain ideas to me. They're expressed in certain ways that make new sense. And, and for me, that kind of forces me to kind of think through these things. And I do problematize things. I do make things complicated just because I think that's for me, that's the method that works. And so kind of that process is laid out for people to respond to in my social media presence. So it can be complicated. And like you said, nuanced, Yeah, yeah. highly nuanced. I mean, the world is nuanced, the world that we live in, it's not binary, which we Uh, we often try to make it binary in an effort to understand it or just identify, you know, I think the idea to to reduce our experiences in the ways that can make sense is understandable 
because you want that, you know, that's how you make meaning of the world, right? Is define things that you make sense of and nuance complicates that and undermines that effort. Right. Yeah. Uh, so for sure, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's a kitty. Oh, Elliot. <laughs> a little jerk lately. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's your cat's name? Elliot and Tony. Elliot's the one you just saw. And Tony is the one that you never see and no one, he won't even let us hold him. So nice. Excellent. Yeah. Elliot. Yeah. Comes full circle. Zach, we're, <laughs> yes. we're talking about Elliot at the beginning. I know, yeah. and my partner has an Elliot shirt, the band, and this is Elliot the cat, named after Elliot Smith, not Elliot. Oh, band. nice. Yeah. Okay. Right. A little jerk. That's a cute cat. <laughs> we're getting a new dog on Friday, so I'm. Oh, nice. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we have a cat here, and he's an old fart. He's great. <laughs> Dude, yeah, awareness. That's the word for the day. It's a good word one. Of the day. I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for doing this. I don't know if I mentioned that at the beginning. I apologize if I didn't. Thank you, sir. You were. Oh, no, I had a great time. Thanks for uh, hitting me up and inviting me to do so. I appreciate it. Of course, uh, man. Yeah. It was rad. Been a fan of May since Scott told me about you guys, probably right as you joined the band. I believe mm-hmm. it was 2004. So it was a pleasure speaking with you. Like I said, I really enjoy your social media presence. So keep doing what you're doing. I think it does good things for the world. And thank you so much. Yeah. Have a wonderful rest of your week and have a wonderful time on tour. I bet you're going to be having a lot of fun. I'll have a blast. I can't wait. Good. Good. Excellent. And hopefully the next time you guys are in Lawrence, I can buy you a drink or something. It'd be great. I like your shirt too, by the way. I've been looking at your shirt. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I just got it with their, with the May 16th day. And I follow, I don't want to say his name incorrectly, but he does all their artwork for them. And he posted oh, okay. And, Wait, is he uh, the one that did the artwork for Heavy Petting Zoo? That guy, the guy that painted it, let's talk about oh, feelings. No, that's Mark DeSalvo. Okay. But yeah, good memory. He's done a lot of work for Fat Wreck and mm-hmm. just skate punk in general. Yeah. No, it's a guy, I want to say his name is Sebus. Okay. He's done a lot of work for them recently. He did the campaign for Railer. Okay. And he's done a lot of really cool special edition merchandise that they've been rolling out for all of their mm-hmm. stuff. They did like a line of let's talk about feelings stuff for their live stream. I saw that. Yeah. And my I partner live stream, but I saw the, I saw the post. I think Lagwagon is probably my favorite fat wreck band consistently. I think yeah. um, from Haas on to, I was there, you know, I went to Railer. Um, you know, there's records I don't love as much like rain. What was the, the hang? The song yeah. rain on hang is rad, but the record yeah. hang I haven't gotten to as much and even Railer, but I, I keep listening to blaze. I think that record is like super un, unappreciated or seemingly like, see, people don't talk about the record as much. I think it's one of their best records. I completely agree. I think we sort of bonded on a Facebook post or something. You yeah. That was one of your favorites. I do feel as though that is one that gets overlooked oftentimes mm. because of their 90s albums, which, you know, are classics in and of themselves. Yeah. But I remember Blaze coming out after nearly five years of not putting out a record, and it was so good. That record is just very, very, very consistent. It has one of my favorite Lagwagon songs, Lullaby. I love that song. Dude, same. I've been playing that song so, so much on my Spotify lately, and I'm so glad I found the record. I only own two live rock records. One is a uh, double platinum and the other one's blaze. And I don't know why I've not gotten Haas or feelings yet. I just haven't, but I think that speaks to how much I like blaze that when it yeah. came out, like, I got to pick that up. It's like, you know, it's not an expensive record at all, but it's a rad record. Yeah. And I can't get enough. Of, I think that's like lag rocking out their best. Absolutely. Yeah. I think layman's terms is also one of my top, top jams. Oh Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, we got to that's another podcast about Lagwagon. 
<laughs> hey, you never know. We may do it. We hey, just yeah. do Fat Wreck Edition. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get uh, Chris Elias and you and you and myself talking about uh, Fat Records. Absolutely, man. Yeah, we played many shows with Punchline back in the day too. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, Rad, man. We'll have. All right, a, All right. Kyle. Thanks so much for having me. Rest of your day. Yeah. You too. All right. All right, man. Take care. Bye bye. thanks so much for listening i really do appreciate it i hope you had a good time i hope you enjoyed this episode if you want to help the podcast out if you want to do a massive solid for us here at having a blast if you could just leave us a review a five-star review would be amazing wherever you listen to podcasts or if you just want to recommend this podcast to a friend who might enjoy it all right hope you have a wonderful day hope you're having a blast listening to your favorite records i'll talk to you later